Welcome to this episode of the Attention Briefs podcast. So based on the feedback that I got from the previous two episodes of the video edition of the podcast, most of you had a problem with where I was looking and I was told to look at the camera. And I do try to look at the camera, but the problem with looking at a camera is you're basically looking at a disembodied hole. That's what the camera is. And it's very difficult to talk. And you will realize that if you do it, if you try this, it's very difficult to talk. uh without looking at a face of a human being so i'm going to look down i'm going to look at my face because that's the only way that i can carry on a conversation since i nowadays do it akele akele so that's the thing so i apologize if i'm not looking at you um no disrespect intended but this is just the way that i'll have to do things or i just won't be able to do it so again for today the topic that i wanted to discuss was afghanistan it somehow doesn't seem to and it's not going to go out of the headlines anytime soon and my watch with i would say morbid fascination as the events unravel not in an unpredicted way this was exactly what was going to happen so i wanted to kind of step aside and some of you might say i've been doing this for a while and but i still feel that it's it's i just can't move beyond afghanistan at this point of time so it comes back to when i was watching the television uh pretty extensively over the last week and most of the coverage both in fox as well as in you know msnbc the more the much more liberal wing of the us media was basically dragging joe biden over the coals now with respect to left wing democratic leaning or even more progressive media it was not so much um i mean any any criticism of biden was being hyphenated with criticism of trump it was more like and indian and those of you who watch indian news would know exactly what i mean so even when there's something terrible that biden has done it's always like but trump was going to be no different as if anybody was even bringing that up um so they have this obviously they have to pander to their you know to their eco chambers so even when msnbc they can't criticize biden without a but and point to trump or point to george w bush because while there is you know very few people would perhaps argue this but there's no doubt that the way biden did it and in a previous podcast i said that the decision wasn't wrong and i don't think anybody is saying that the us should stay in the in afghanistan forever i think the way that joe biden did it and and what exactly did joe biden do which was so terrible so it can be summed up very simply joe biden essentially evacuated the military before he did anything else so the plan was just to take the military out there was no plan for dispositioning of the equipment everything was going to happen after that so the plan was or so the plan was conveyed was that the us were just going to take out everything that they had then they would then the afghani government would stay maybe for 3 months maybe for a year and then gradually they would send a moving truck and slowly take their stuff out maybe parcels some stuff on and i'm kidding of course but that's really 
um, the way that they thought that this thing was going to play out, that the military was going to leave and the Taliban was just, and the US and the Afghani government would have a negotiation with, with the Taliban and say, guys, don't invade us right now. Kindly invade us on the weekends or uh, when uh, during the weekdays, the movers are going to be taking the American equipment out. So please don't come then. Please invade us after everything is gone. So apparently everything was set up like this. So obviously the Taliban was not going to obey any of it. So they basically took over the country and took over the equipment within a few days. Now, there was not just a question of equipment. For the last 20 years, there has been a huge, a huge number of Afghani citizens have, quote unquote, collaborated with the US-backed, quote unquote, puppet government that was installed in Afghanistan. And ultimately, the US bases were being run by Afghanis. And, you know, most of them obviously did it for money. Some of them possibly did it for you know, that they didn't want the Taliban. But of course, in, in a country like Afghanistan, where there's no native industry, um, there is no knowledge economy, you know, working with the government. And for those of us who remember the socialist days of India, the government job was the only job that, that was safe, secure, and which paid a decent salary. So many of them worked, most of them worked for the government. And now they all, they, all of them know that they are targets. They have targets on their back. And no matter what the Taliban say, that we have a general amnesty, everybody knows. Everybody on the ground, only Biden and, and his cronies claim that, of course, we have to trust. Um, and, they, and Biden, by the way, is being asked, do you trust the Taliban? Do you trust the Taliban? So anything that the Taliban is saying with respect to general amnesty, everybody knows that it's all hoo-ha. And that's why People are, you know, rushing the airports. They're getting onto planes while they're flying because they know that the that Taliban has no intent in any shape or form of uh, essentially having a general amnesty. They will definitely go, and they've already gone. This is as we speak. The purge is going on. They have gone after who they consider to be collaborators. So Biden, and that's the inhumanity of even the liberals. Um, even the virtue signaling liberals here, that at the end of it all, even progressives like Biden or you know, Kamala Harris, they, the only people they really care for are US citizens, um, not the Afghanis who helped the US citizens, not the Afghanis who were told repeatedly that we are here for the long haul. We are going to help you establish a democratic country. None of these people mattered. They just left. And if you ask, uh, Biden apologists, what they're saying today is, of course, we thought we had time. We were going to evacuate them slowly. Who do you think we are, idiots? Of course, this was going to go down within 48 hours. Taliban was going to take over Kabul. I mean, who else, how else would this have played out? So what has happened right now is that not only do we have a massive humanitarian crisis, but the Taliban have taken over U.S. bases. They have U.S. equipment. And watching the, the US channels and you see ex-servicemen um, who've served in Afghanistan and actually they're coming on Fox and they're coming on you know NBC or ABC and, and some of them it's it's heartrending to see that they have tears in their eyes. These are very, very brave people. They've actually fought on the front lines and they have tears in their eyes because they're seeing their associates in Afghanistan, people that they have worked with being left behind 
or maybe they've just been able to evacuate the person, but the, that person's family is left behind. And that person is pleading with them that, please let me bring my family back. I will go. I will go back to Afghanistan. Let me go back to Afghanistan and get them back. But the US, they have, they're basically processing Afghani refugee visas like they would process an H-1B. They're going through the bureaucracy at this point of time. And the reason why they're going through the bureaucracy is simple. They just don't want them here. They want, and there's no other way of putting it, they want the Taliban to get to them before they can get on a plane uh, coming to the US. So that's that's really what they're doing by, by enforcing this kind of bureaucracy at the point of entry. And of course, if Trump had done anything like this, there would have been hell to bear. But of course, the... It's not that the media isn't covering this. They are. It's not that they're totally suppressing it. But of course, the virulence of of the actions of the U.S. government isn't getting that amount of prominence that it would have gotten if this had happened under Trump's watch. Um, Where, of course, the fact that, you know, Trump's own biases would have been brought in. Here, of course, since Biden's biases are not known, nobody is kind of personally pinning this on Biden that, you know, you actually don't really care for Afghanis. Nobody is saying that to his face. They should, because that's exactly what Biden has done. And Biden might think that I'm washing my hands off. This is not my problem. And many people who have interacted with Biden while he was the vice president say that Biden, even during the Obama era, Biden was one of the people who were very strongly in favor of bringing the troops home and of letting Afghanis deal with themselves. Um, it was more Obama who wanted to give Afghanis a chance to nation build all of the soft talk. Um, and Biden was never really a part of this. So this was this is very much who Biden is. But nobody is really making the connection between what is going on and, let's say, personal biases of Joe Biden. Why would you leave behind? Why would you leave behind so many native Afghanis who you claim that you were trying to uh, you know, create a new, new nation for? The people who kind of bought in to your dream, um, a dream as it was, why would you at this point of time, why would your messaging to be right now be, you know what, apply through the process. If, we, if, you, if you get in through the process, that's fine. With, with the Taliban, with the guns pointed at the back of their heads, the US is expecting them to follow the process. This is inhuman. And you see servicemen and servicewomen who served with these people, who know them personally, breaking down on television because they feel helpless. They cannot help their colleagues. They cannot help their friends. And they say, look, this person was with us. They traveled with us when we used to go out on patrols. This guy helped us clear bodies of our own men. They pulled us. They pulled us when there was fire coming off. These people served just like we did. You cannot now say you're Afghanis, deal with it, which is what Biden is essentially doing. Now, this comes back to why did the US go in? What was the plan? Now, initially, when the US went in after 9-11, it was fairly obvious why the US went in. The US had to go in. Um, as I'd said in my you know, a previous podcast, this is the old modified prisoner's dilemma. I know this is not the prisoner's dilemma, but if somebody in prison comes in, and hits you or puts a knife into your stomach, even if you don't want to then go and fight back, you have to. If you do not fight back, and this is going to prison 101, if you just let it be, 
then you will have another person coming and knifing you. Then you'll have another person coming and knifing you. So if somebody comes in and engages in violence, then you have to strike back. If you don't strike back, then you're dead in a prison. So this is not just true for prison, but this is true for geopolitics also, especially when in, in the case of US, your main thing is that you are the leader of the free world. So if you're the leader of the free world, and a bunch of uh, you know a bunch of people, twenty-two people uh, from another country come and you know basically take down uh, the biggest emblem of your economic and political might, and then send a plane crashing into you know the Pentagon, which is the seat of your military power. At that point of time, obviously, you have to go in and do something if only to make sure at least to your own globe, not just the global audience, but to US citizens. Otherwise, why do we even have a government? Or, I mean, obviously the US, the US citizens aren't used to, you know, Kari Ninda in a Goga Kapoor voice as the response of their government. So obviously they haven't, they don't have the expectations that we in India have kind of grown up with, but so they expect action. And so they took action in Afghanistan. This was fairly natural and fairly obvious and fairly justified, I would say. But the objective there was basically to get Bin Laden. Bin Laden attacked them. Taliban kind of didn't attack them. Taliban was sheltering Bin Laden. So it made sense that, okay, the primary target is Bin Laden. The secondary target are the Taliban who helped Bin Laden, which is Mullah Omar. Now, the people who actually helped Bin Laden, where Bin Laden was actually sitting at Bordabad, Pakistan, of course, the US didn't do anything to them. Uh, because they were the true enablers of Osama bin Laden, much more than uh, the Taliban, actually, who were also being enabled by Pakistan. So even on the logical scale, the US weren't really going to go after the second level enablers. They were just going to go after Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden is kind of like the Ronald McDonald of global terrorism. He is basically the guy they put on the front of the store with fries and with a burger. Um, he's ultimately, he's, he comes on video, he used to come on video and he used to make these speeches. But most people who, who study these know that he was barely a figurehead. Um, there were people behind him, there were handlers behind him. And so, but, and, and, and nobody knows who they were. We can guess who they were. And obviously, the, many of them were from Pakistan and from ISI, but the US were not, was not interested in, in going after them uh, for, for reasons that are too obvious to get into here. So, but it's true that the Osama bin Laden had put himself up as the global mascot of jihadi terrorism. The U.S. had to take him out, which I totally get, which is where Biden want, wanted the U.S. to withdraw. Now that Osama is dead, the, the compulsions of domestic policy are gone. Uh, we have flexed our muscles in front of the global community. So why do we want to stick? Now, this is at that point of time, there was, of course, a split opinion. And Biden was on the side, on definitely on the side of bring the troops home. Obama was not so much. And uh, there are multiple people have reported on this, and it's not, there's nothing secret about this either. So this comes back to why exactly, I mean, what, what was the thought? And this was, this was one reason, but then why didn't, why didn't they withdraw in 2011, 2012? Now, there are two reasons for that, essentially. One is that there is this, this whole neocon narrative and this neocon, neoconservative narrative is not much different from the ancient imperial, colonial Christian missionary narrative. It's essentially the same thing, repackaged, repurposed, which essentially says that um, the Western world has a duty to civilize the natives. 
And in this case, at different points of time, this was the facade for, and I talked about this in my last podcast, it was a facade for different other things. This was the, this was the moral sugar, which was, you know, sprinkled over, over the, the actual thing, which was, you know, to get slaves from Africa or to get spices from India. So this, but Overall, you can't really say that. It just sounds really bad unless you're discussing this among friends over beer. So you say, look, we, we, we have to bring the light of you know, either Jesus Christ or Western civilization to these people who are languishing in the darkness of their own traditions. This, is, this has kind of been, we've heard it for hundreds of years. And even with respect to Afghanistan, there is, as well as Iraq, there was a strong element of this. And this is well-documented. And so this is part of the neocon uh, philosophy. Now, of course, as we just now said, people don't normally spend trillions of dollars on a philosophy. Um, they spend it in order to make more money. Uh, and so this comes to the military industrial complex and no, no person less than Dwight Eisenhower used these terms. So the military industrial complex, and I, I used to be in DC for a while and I used to listen and I used to, as, as part of, you know, going and you know listening to proposal grant conferences where people talk you could see that you could see it right there there were massive huge 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 you know defense contractors who were you know it's and, and defense contractor people kind of think of as weapons it's not weapons only it's the surrounding infrastructure there might not be any weapons concerned it could be just infrastructure, just computing infrastructure. It could be cybersecurity. Everything is built around a certain mission. So when people say that you know something like sustaining a war like Afghanistan has severe economic benefits, it's not just they're talking about the people who sell missiles and aircraft carriers. It's talking about you know software developers, um, you know people who normally don't think and who normally won't even know that they're associated with the war effort. Because you have contracts coming to the big defense contractors who then contract out to other people who then contract out to other people. So three or four or five levels. And at, at some of these contractual levels, there are companies whose basic job it is to take classified information, to take information that we don't, they don't want people to know and kind of do a problem transformation so that the problem can then be open sourced. So there are, there are companies which do this. So for instance, they would take a defense problem like, let's say, um, you know, an optimal path of bombing, let's say, I'm making this up as we speak, and kind of turn this into a different kind of algorithmic problem and ask university professors to solve it, have it as a challenge problem. So a war like this, a war like a 20-year war, a 30-year war, and we're talking about small wars, these wars, when you have these wars going on, you are assured of funding. And that's how expansion takes place. Expansion doesn't take place when you just get a, you know, a, just a bun, you know, just a packet of funding. It's when you know that you will be getting funding moving forward. So the, one of the main guys behind this was a guy called Donald Rumsfeld. So Donald Rumsfeld has had this vision. And for the vision, he needed wars like Afghanistan, these kind of eternal wars, because there was going to be a test bed for what he wanted. And what he wanted was a new way of fighting wars. So if you had looked, and, I, and, and I've seen these, so there were prototypes. I don't know where those prototypes were, but they were being made around 2005, 2006, which were like exoskeletons, kind of like what you'd seen in Aliens um, and Matrix. Um, I've seen them. 
exoskeletons that were being funded by from something called future combat systems, which was a huge DOD project, which the basic tenet of future combat systems was that we want to create the next generation of warrior. And the warrior is not going to look or going to operate like the soldiers that we know today. So they're going to have basically a heads up display with different kinds of data analytics coming to them in real time, different kind of computer vision. So data from drones and everything. So when you walk in, you basically have a dashboard of information right in front of you that you can pull up. Um, and so this was, I've forgotten what the names were, but this was, this was high tech stuff. And as part of that, there were things like exoskeletons. So allow military personnel to essentially get fitted with you know, Hulk-like strength. Now, this is exciting technology. And as a technologist, as somebody in software, I was obviously excited by all of this. But all of these things, the funding from this comes from a war like Afghanistan. So there is a lot of vested interest in making sure that these wars sustain themselves. And one of the first things that Obama did on becoming the president was he canceled the future combat systems, if I recall correctly. I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm, I'm right on this. So now Biden's Biden's doesn't believe in any of this. Biden doesn't, and he's right, that if you're going to spend money on defense, it really doesn't make sense to kind of build this aliens versus predators kind of bodysuits. Um, it really doesn't make sense. Um, they're okay with like drones or with robots getting to that extent, but they're not going to go to that sci-fi, you know, that vision that, that Rumsfeld has as the, as the army of the future. So, they realize, and rightfully, that America's biggest wars are, are not going to be fought on the field. That wars like Afghanistan basically show us that the nature of war has changed. It's no longer possible for a country to actually get boots on the ground and win a war. Um, everybody knows that. So in order to win a war, any kind of warfare has to, there has to be an element of subterfuge to it. So war is gone digital. This is the nature of today's world. And so if any, if any investment has to be made, and, and, and the US is making significant amount of investments, but it's still behind. It's still behind. Other countries like China and Russia have taken a lead in terms of cyber and digital warfare. They have invested a lot of money because they don't have these kinds of wars going on. They don't have, they didn't have Iraq and they didn't have Afghanistan going on, which were, which were conventional wars. And what, and I support Biden on this. I don't support Biden on the way that he disengaged. There was a much better way of doing it, uh, including you know, ensuring that all, all the Afghanis that, that had collaborated with them were settled and were given refugee status. So that part of it is the crit criticism. But in terms of his understanding, there's nothing wrong with it. It's actually true that the nature of war has shifted to a digital landscape. It's cyber war is the war of the future. Um, and as we have seen with COVID, it's not so much war, but it's it's a mixture of geopolitics, pandemics, um, environmental crisis. These are the these are the challenges. These are the things that will lead to thousands and maybe millions of lives being lost. These are the real priority areas. It's not so much you know a guy with a missile launcher. You know, that nature of war is kind of last century. It's it's kind of, you know, it's kind of Imran Hashmi now. It's 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 no longer, it's it seemed to be awesome at one point of time, but it, it, it's not for today. It's it's not for today. We are 
we're we, we trying to look at the Taimur Khan of warfare at this point of time. We need to invest for the Taimur generation. And Af the Afghan war is really the last of a breed of a vanishing model of war, not just in terms of the way it's fought, but also in the terms of the way it's financed. So moving on, there's, there's the question of, of course, the, the Taliban, which are there. And you know, who are the Taliban? I, I, Ultimately, in order to understand Afghani politics, you have to understand that unlike sub the subcontinent in terms of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, the British never really controlled Afghanistan. Nobody ever did. So the foundational aspects of democracy that the British made, um, they were never able to successful in making in Afghanistan. So many people also say that, you know, Nehru made democracy. Nehru essentially didn't allow the democratic structure made by the British. Now, the, the British didn't make the democratic structure because they were they wanted to give the Indians something. They, they themselves felt that this was the most efficient way of extracting whatever they could out of India. Um, so again, this is not a justification. This is not a, oh, I, it's not the, the, a variation of what Manmohan Singh once said, that, that the British did a lot of good. No, I'm not saying that. But the British did create some democratic institutions in India. That is undeniable. That is a historical fact. And what Nehru did to his credit, what he did not allow them to be dismantled and he strengthened them. On the other hand, Pakistan allowed them to be dismantled and actively worked to have them dismantled. The Afghanistan didn't even have those systems. It never had the systems. So Afghanistan was kind of always a, a kind of a history time bubble to something which was much more primeval. So they, they are essentially a tribal place. So it's, it's, it's very strong, very, very strong tribal loyalties. And when we, one of the things that you would normally wonder is that who are the enemies of the Taliban? This place is a highly Islamic country. So who exactly are they fighting? And, and that's a good question. And the question is that Taliban represents a very extreme brand of Islam, which is driven primarily by misogyny. The other, their enemies aren't, very different. Okay. The, the, the thing that really distinguishes one from the other are their tribe affiliations. So which tribe do they belong to? Who is the tribe currently allocated to? So they, their tribal identity, as well as the religious identity, that is how they define their identity. So people who do not, who do not fall within the religious and tribal identity have been genocided for a while ago. So they don't exist anymore. And they have been or, or rather in the context Hindu Kush a long time ago. And they, I mean, very few people have a mountain range named after a genocide of a certain religion. And they do actually do have that. So again, that is not the source of their conflict. They never had a multi-religious, um, diverse country in the beginning. So the Taliban isn't the reaction to that. Taliban is essentially strong, medieval, very hardline push to nationalism, which is why their biggest enemies are the Northern Alliance, uh, led by used to be led by Ahmed Shah Massoud, now led by his son, who are primarily Tajik. So they are their primary antagonists from a tribal perspective, and they are all holed up in the Panjshir project uh, in Panjshir province. I'm sorry, which is which the Taliban never have been able to capture so far because it's a very naturally protected area. Now we don't know this time whether they'll be able to capture it. Um, they haven't captured it yet, but based on the largest left by the US, we don't know if the, the, the Taliban, if they just kind of tip the scales in favor of Taliban that they can now actually have the machinery to go in 
to the Panjshir province, which is really the last bastion of anti-Taliban forces, because it is there. It's it's primarily Tajik, and if you if you know the history of Ahmed Shah Massoud, who was killed right before 9/11, Ahmed Shah Massoud was um, you know allied with India, Iran. They, they, he was he was that, and, he, and 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 the Taliban were of course allied with with, with Pakistan and ISI. So in order to understand the Naxalite, uh, uh, sorry, and I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. In order to understand uh, the Taliban, they're very similar. And I saw that the point has been made on Twitter. They're very similar to Naxalites in, in, in many ways. That they, they come from extremely poor. They're ex- most of them are extremely poor. They're very young. They're extremely poor. They have been brainwashed. And this is really, and, 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 their, and their struggle is linked with getting things that they normally would not get. So if you look at the videos of them um, essentially riding this, you know, this, this bump car thing in a, in a carnival or jumping on a trampoline, these are people who normally wouldn't have that by virtue of their, you know, by, by virtue of their poverty. So this is a way for them to get power. So this, and this is perhaps one of the reasons why you would usually not find a lot of condemnation of Taliban's from communists is that they're not very different from communists and the communist ideal of um, class struggle. Where the where, I mean, this is not very dissimilar from, let's say, uh, the Khmer Rouge. So again, their books may be different. It might be very difficult to reconcile uh, people from the, the Khmer Rouge with Taliban, but they're very similar in terms of their purges, in terms of their intellectual rigidity, in terms of their use of violence, and also in terms of their objectives. They're very, very similar. So the point is that they're very much like Naxalites. And take Naxalism and mix with it the toxic part of Pushtu nationalism. And and by the way, this is this is also a very dangerous game for Pakistan. And many people in Pakistan realize that too, that of course, the the gambit has always been that use the Taliban as a counter to India so that they can get Kashmir, which is really the single point agenda of Pakistani politics. But it's never really worked out because the Taliban aren't interested in fighting pan-Islamic causes because, again, their main thing is they are Pashtu nationalists. They want to establish their and again, they're they're very inward looking. They're not really. It was Osama bin Laden who was kind of resident there, a malware in a compromised OS, I would say, who was really the problem with the US. In general, the Taliban had been there for six or seven years before 9/11, and they weren't a problem for the US. The US was negotiating with them fine at that point of time. So the Taliban by by itself isn't particularly interested in any area outside Afghanistan, but they're definitely interested in the areas of Pakistan, which are dominated by the Pashtun tribes. And this leads to uh, the TTP, which is the Pakistani branch of the Taliban, which has attacked and has engaged with the Pakistani army several times. And this is going to be the, the ascendancy of of the of um, the Taliban is bad news for us, but even more so, it's bad news for Pakistan actually, because the Pakistan can't and hasn't figured out a way. Now they might now they haven't figured out a way to use the Taliban against India. 
because Kashmir is not an emotive issue for them. It is, it is not part of this sphere. And again, they are not interested in that pan-Islamic hegemony that let's say the Saudis are interested in, or many countries in the in, 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 in Middle East are interested in. They are only interested in establishing a very strong, independent tribal homeland, which is governed by their social, societal norms, free of people who uh, do not, free of people who want to change them essentially. And, you know, it forms a kind of very medieval kind of justice system, you know, that you cut off people's arms, you cut off people's eyes, you stone people to death. So it, it forms this very medieval justice system. And that's all that they really care for. Um, everything else, and of course, they care for money and, you know, getting ahead in life, which everybody does. And again, in a place like Afghanistan, where there's not, there's nothing else to do, this is exactly what they have. All they can do is rob from one person to another. And where did the money come from? This is the money that the U.S. has left behind. So the U.S. has done irreparable damage to this country because for 20 years they've poured the money in. And so now what the Taliban is going to do is that now they're going to fight the people who've had the money. And the U.S. didn't make any attempt to take the money out, take their arms out, and the people to whom they paid money out so that they aren't people to rob, essentially. They aren't people to murder. These people are not just going to be murdered because they collaborated with the U.S. They're going to be murdered because they have money. I was reading somewhere that it was a strange, bizarre story about this Afghani boy who um, made a jersey. Um, and this, 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 this made a jersey for Messi and this, this, this thing got viral. And I think he got to meet Messi in Qatar, in Qatar. I think I'm not sure about this, but then when he came back, his life changed. He became a target because people thought that just because he had gotten that opportunity that Messi had given him money, that he, that if they kidnapped him, then Messi would pay the ransom. So it, made it was a terrible tragedy for this kid to get noticed. And this kind of sums up the kind of craziness that Afghanistan is. And in a place where there is really nothing to do, no economy, then this becomes the economy. War becomes the economy. So I started off by saying that, you know, the 20-year war was the U.S.'s was a way to boost the U.S. economy, was a way to boost lobbyists, the essentially people who paid lobbyists. Um, big defense contractors. It was essentially a way to boost their economy. But it's also true in Afghanistan, true, that in Afghanistan also, the only business that exists is that of war. And, you know, the money that Western powers, before that it was, of course, um, the, the USSR, then it was US through Pakistan, while, you know, arming the Mujahideen against the Russians. And then directly after when the Americans came in, it was the Americans directly. So all the money that exists currently there, which Biden did not take out, is going to be the spark to the flame that is going to trigger the conflict moving forward. And that is the supreme irony. So it was not just a question of, and which brings me to the, how I began this podcast, which is not just a question of, I wish Biden had showed more humanity, had shown more empathy for the people who held them. It's just that Biden had just shown a little bit more of intelligence and kind of taken out the stuff that they put in. Of course, Biden is going to say, but I, I thought that the Afghanis were going to use that against the, against, the, against the Taliban. Of course, why would I take it out? But please, we all know that that's not true. Everybody knew that 
the Afghanis had no will to fight the Taliban. They were because and I say this because the Taliban is a popular outfit. They're not invaders coming from outside. They the local people there. So why would they why would they fight to the last man? People who they don't really have a you know a lot of conflict with. If they can negotiate their way out, why wouldn't they? Why would they die when they can negotiate their way out? So again, the Taliban is smart. They they will they will have this gradation. They will be some people will be able to buy out their collaboration. Some people won't be able to buy out their collaboration, and they're going to be decimated. They're going to be killed, and these are the guys who are trying to escape. The guys who were too deep in, and the guys who don't have the chips to negotiate with the Taliban, because now everybody is basically buying their lives, and the only business that's going on in Afghanistan tragically is the business of lives. They're basically selling whatever they have in order to get safety from Taliban. So when they say they're sitting down at the negotiation table to talk to the Taliban, this is just a sophisticated way of saying they're basically offering money and stuff to the Taliban to spare them. That's really what this negotiation is. And when the when the Taliban says we're going to form a diverse government, <laughs> when Taliban says diverse, I mean again, what irony! But when they, when they say that and when they're not very clear about the details, it's that the Taliban themselves aren't clear. They don't know who's going to pay them and they don't know that who are they going to buksh based on the bakshish that they get. Anyways, this was um, an interesting podcast. Again, I've gone back to Afghanistan several times. So maybe next time we'll, we'll do something uh, different. So again, um, again, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know where I was looking throughout the podcast. Once I record it, I'll see it and I'll feel, oh my goodness, I was staring up at all the time. Maybe. Um, and I'm definitely going to get criticized in the comment space. But again, I apologize for not looking at you in the face, in, in the eyes. No, no eye to eye, Tahir Shah style. But this is the way I have to do it because I have to look at my own face while recording. Finally, please do like and subscribe. If you don't like or subscribe, the reason why I'm doing video podcasts is basically to have this podcast be discovered by more people. Um, podcast players don't have a very good discovery mechanism, um, but YouTube has a great discovery mechanism. I know based on the number of Bhojpuri uh, songs that I've seen over the past 12 years that they have a very good discovery uh, mechanism and they totally understand what aspect of a, something that you're actually interested in magically. So the reason why I'm doing this on video um, is for that, is for the discoverability. And in order to boost that discoverability, I would really, really appreciate that you like this video, you subscribe to this channel, because that is how YouTube evaluates the trustworthiness of content. That is really the only way they do it. So this is, and of course, there's my ego also, please. So that's it for um, this episode, and I'll see you next week. Stay well. Thank you. Bye-bye.